The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for December 17th, 2021. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Uh, man, I don't know what it is. Like, this is the last week before the two-week kind of Christmas, New Year's blow off, right? A little notice, right, for everybody. We are only going to have... One episode per week on the main feed for Christmas and New Year's. Uh, so just the Wednesday episodes. This will be the last Friday episode until uh, 2022. But I don't know whether it's that, whether it's just the, you know, like we're just trying to get across the finish line or I'm genuinely talking about a subject that I hate, which is true. But I have no joy in discussing with you January 6th and the January 6th select committee investigation, whatever. I I don't even want to waste words on it when I'm going to have to talk about it later, but that's coming up. We're also going to talk about the fruit of the Texas abortion law, controversial Texas abortion law, which does not ban abortions after six weeks, but it does empower people to sue people that give abortions and receive abortions that has been allowed to continue by the Supreme Court and so to other states. In fact, the other two biggest states in uh, uh, America have now followed suit and put out their own versions. Obviously, these are not abortion laws, They are tackling their own issues, one in California, one in Florida. What did Newsom and DeSantis get all up into next? And what do all of the governors in Texas, Florida, and California have in common? And I guarantee you this one is for the nerds. If you are nerdy and you like this show, you're going to love this interview. It is all about the rhetoric of political speech. Now, you guys know this is something that I very much love because I obviously am a nerd for this kind of stuff, but also worked on The Contender, the game of uh, presidential debate, which was all about breaking down political rhetoric into building blocks where you were able to throw them around. So it, it is a great interview. I really had an amazing time. There's a great new book out on the subject. And uh, you will hear all about that a little bit later in the program. Bird first. Hey, do you remember cereal commercials when you were a kid? I don't know if they're all still like this, but they would go a little something like this. 
a, a, a big, amazing cereal that was completely made out of sugar would be at the center of a fight between a real child and usually a cartoon animal. And eventually the kid got to eat the cereal, but there'd be this disclaimer at the end. And it would usually go something like this. That bowl of sugar was only part of a balanced breakfast. And then they would usually, at the very, very end, just to show that it was only part of a balanced breakfast, they would never show the cereal alone. They would always show it next to some toast, maybe an egg, some OJ, bowl of fruit. The idea here is that while the sugar cereal is fun, it's not a substitute for a healthy, balanced breakfast. It's tasty, but you have too much of it or confuse it with actual nutrition, you may be in trouble. And it is with that lead-in that we get to the text messages that were sent to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 6th. They made a lot of news. Here is a clip of some of them. One text Mr. Meadows received said, quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Another, quote, they have breached the Capitol. In a third, Mark, protesters are literally storming the Capitol, breaking windows on doors, rushing in. Is Trump going to say something? A fourth, there's an armed standoff at the House chamber door. And another, from someone inside the Capitol. We are all helpless. So obviously, Mark Meadows, like I'm sure everybody in Washington, D.C., was getting frantic text messages about what was happening at the Capitol. The difference is that Mark Meadows is the chief of staff for the president that spoke at the protest that eventually spawned this riot in the Capitol. But the ones that make them that made the most news, the text messages that made the most news were from Trump's inner circle, his own son and his beloved friends from the TV. Fox News primetime hosts Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity, as well as Fox and Friends's Brian Kilmeade. The president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. An issue here is that while these hosts were clamoring for action by the president in the moment, which eventually came, but too late and too qualified for many. They were offering plenty of reasons for why this was not as bad as it seemed in their roles as television talking heads. This included one of the most common tropes from people who support a cause, but are uncomfortable by the violence that erupts from its supporters. This wasn't our people. They were outside agitators. The reality here, of course, is that be it on January 6th, the 1999 Seattle WTO protests, there is always a subsection of large protests that are indeed there to cause violence. On January 6th, it was in our nation's capital. 
But even then, we're getting into a really dumb area. We are asking for another sugary bowl of cereal. Making fun of television hosts for being empty hypocritical vessels is both fun and easy, but it doesn't bring us any closer to having anything be learned that is new about January 6th. And the reason why is that we already know everything we need to know about January 6th. We know that the Capitol Police were not organized. We know that they were not prepared to have reinforcements come in. We know why the people got into the Capitol. We know how long it took for them to be cleared out. The rest of our balanced breakfast has been in front of our faces for months. The eggs and toast long cold. And by the way, let me just say this. Not only should the Capitol Police have been more prepared, but even more so considering that the night before the January 6th riots, that pipe bombs were placed at both RNC and DNC headquarters, a crime for which we still haven't solved, by the way. And apparently we don't care enough to solve it because we are prioritizing another dunk on Sean Hannity's ever-widening head. Now, here's the other immutable fact about January 6th. There would have been no crowd there if Trump would have conceded. Yes. However, if we really want to understand that being the case, then we also need to ask ourselves a question. Should it be illegal to not concede? Now, if your answer is yes to that, then that's fine, I guess. But let's understand that that's the conversation that we're having here. If you believe that Donald Trump is culpable for that Capitol riot, and I do believe he bears tremendous culpability for it. Again, they wouldn't have been there if he wasn't still holding on to this increasingly long shot idea that he was would still be able to be president. But. We need to focus on that, not what was happening in the moment. Beyond that, look, this is a protest that turned violent. It's awful, but it happens. It was the product of bad decision-making, political cowardice, and an outsized passion after one of the most tough years in modern American history. I hate talking about the January 6th committee because I don't believe that they have really surfaced a lot that I didn't know. I don't believe it's going to have a lot of traction going forward. And I am very, very done with the Trump show and its spinoff, Congress Talks About the Trump Show. You know, the first season that ended without the impeachment about Russia, that was okay. The second one where they did impeach him over Ukraine was way too convoluted. And while the third season with the whole attack on the Capitol in the premiere was viscerally exciting, I just think that the story's been dragged out way, way, way too far. And yet the attention here is absolutely undeniable. Donald Trump is still a magnet for headlines and attention. The news stations love to cover him, and there is nothing 
that inspires more empty chatter than the fate of Trump. The idea that this is the time that he is going to get got. <sighs> We're going to ride this thing right into 2024, aren't we? Hachi machi. The Texas abortion bill, which empowers citizens to report an abortion. Performed after six weeks and sue both the recipient and the provider now has copycats. Florida and California are following suit by prosecuting their own pet projects using the snitch method pioneered by Texas Governor Greg Abbott and the legislature here. A reminder that these bills have not been struck down by the Supreme Court because of the structure of the law. Now, I am not a lawyer, but this is how I understand the legal argument for why the Supreme Court has not stepped in and stopped these laws from going into, uh, into practice. Essentially, if a state makes a law that violates the Constitution by denying a citizen a federal right, the court has, and in the past, and can step in to stop that implementation. So if I say that you are not allowed to buy concrete, right, for whatever reason, I don't know, but that's, that's probably a bad example. If, if I say you can't do something and I say that uh, uh, anybody who is caught selling this is going to face arrest by state actors like police and stuff like that, then the Supreme Court can say, all right, the state is not allowed to do that. The reason why these are tricky is because the laws only promise to reward a private citizen for doing the job of the state. In the case of abortion in Texas, it means that you get, by way of only rewarding people for snitching, you do not deny somebody immediately of their right. You would have to wait until somebody actually does it before you were able to bring a case. This means that you get all of the chilling effect that a abortion law would have, but the court uh, uh, can't step in and stop it because technically they have yet to be denied. Now, it is believed that these laws will eventually be ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But until then, California has created a law to stem the sales of guns, and Florida has done one to embolden parents who believe that their kids are being taught critical race theory. In Newsom's case, the law to sue the man he has a law to sue the manufacturers of assault weapons and ghost guns both of which are currently illegal in the golden state so you know if you did see one of these things you could probably just call the police but now i guess you can call the police and also cash a check and in Florida, DeSantis made a similar move. This is from Politico. A key piece of the DeSantis proposal would give parents the power to sue local school districts that teach lessons rooted in critical race theory. This part, which also allows parents to collect attorney's fees, is similar to the bounties permitted under Texas con Texas's controversial abortion law. Under that law, ordinary citizens can sue those who provide abortions and collect the attorney's fees as well. Uh, I hate the Texas law. I think that if you want to ban abortion, then ban abortion. 
if you have the will of the people to do so, then that is what you should do. I don't believe he has the will of the people here. I believe that this is kind of a weaselly way to do it. And it's especially pernicious in terms of drawing lines between the citizens. I don't believe that citizens should be incentivized to snitch on each other when it comes to stuff like this. I think it is harmful to the fabric of America. And I think the same of the laws in California and Florida, no matter what you agree, whether or not you agree with elements of this, that you hate guns or you despise critical race theory. I think that this is a bad way to go about the state's business. However, it is an effective way to put an overreaching law into practice. It is an effective way to draw headlines. It is an effective way to have something to talk about when you go on television, as Abbott and DeSantis regularly do in conservative media like Fox News and, DeSa and uh, Newsom does in liberal media like The Daily Show and The View. So, what do Ron DeSantis, Gavin Newsom, and Greg Abbott have in common? Huh. I wonder why these three governors would want to be doing big, loud legislative moves that are very short-sighted because almost all, almost certainly all of them are going to be ruled unconstitutional. Oh, yeah. They're all running for re-election in 2022. Imagine that. Friends, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for supporting this show. Uh, uh, thank you to everybody who has purchased your cameos. Uh, you can head on over to the Cameo app or website. Search for Jury, J-U-R-Y. Love doing those shout-outs, especially during the holiday season. And look, I know, I know we're, we're, getting, we're getting into crunch time. We're getting into that phase where it might not be appropriate to... You might not feel comfortable ordering things for shipping. Digital goods, very good. Very good digital goods. You can get your shout out right now on Cameo. Uh, uh, look for Jury, J-U-R-Y. Of course, if you would like to support this show financially, you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. In fact, the Thursday episode, which is exclusive to uh, the $3 level and above, they got the latest when it comes to the Build Back Better bill. Now it looks like it is punted into next year, which I have said before is, uh, uh, you know, delaying it a few months is much like delaying breathing for a few months. Uh, so Democrats are at war with each other there. They are now pushing for a voting rights uh, uh, act. All of that was explained uh, in our Thursday episode. And of course, you get your Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition, which comes out first thing Monday morning, where we break down all of the Sunday morning talk shows. It's available for you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Thank you. To everybody with the holiday spirit, keeping this program alive.
Oh, words. <laughs> Communicating, messaging, making sure that a politician is able to connect with the voters they need to succeed. It's called rhetoric, and it's very important. But there is a science to it, one that I believe can oftentimes get overanalyzed. Here, to help us break it down, is a man who is a professor of politics at Ryerson University in Toronto. He's a former U.S. House and Senate speech writer, and he is the author of a brand new book, Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions, uh, being published by Cambridge University Press. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Rob Goodman. Welcome to the program, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So when I got the email about you uh, possibly coming on, I, I knew I definitely wanted to do it because I, I personally have a very conflicted relationship with the idea of words and and politics because they no doubt mean a lot they are this is a a communications business we we always say here on the show that politics is really about getting more people into a booth to press your button than the other guys and that involves having messages that resonate and those involve words but at the same time i think especially in our hyper analyzed world we tend to maybe put too much of, of a weight on what somebody is or is not saying at any given moment. So as somebody who has spent a lot of time uh, uh, looking into this issue for the, the book, uh, where do you think the importance of modern political linguistics are in, in the year of our Lord 2021, the, the <laughs> final days here? Well, yeah, that, that's a good question. The, the final days in general, I, I imagine. <laughs> Maybe not just the final days of 2021, sure. the final days. But no, I, I'll tell you, um, so I come at this from a couple of perspectives. Um, one, I, I worked as a political speech writer. So I've, I've, I wrote speeches for politicians on the national level in the House and the Senate. Uh, and I did that for about five years. And then I went off to get my PhD and study to be a political theorist. So now I'm kind of approaching it from the perspective of history and how people have thought about uh, political rhetoric um, you know, from ancient times right up to the present. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess the one thing I could say to your question is I, I, I do tend to... Um, side with, with the point of view that people oftentimes overestimate uh, the importance uh, of messaging and rhetoric uh, for shaping public opinion, uh, for um, moving audiences, for, for getting people to press the button. And, and that might sound odd for someone who spends all this time studying it and for someone who's been a speechwriter. But, but for me, it's not that odd because when I think about how people have thought about rhetoric uh, for generations, not just in the present, one of the themes that comes up for me is that rhetoric isn't just about making the audience uh, do what you want it to do. And in fact, yeah. I think audiences are pretty resistant to that. Uh, we, we know when we're, someone's trying to push buttons, we know when someone's trying to manipulate us or pander to us. Um, but it can be about other things too. And I think one of the things that it's about that is underrated is about the kind of relationships that exist between people who speak and people who listen, uh, which is especially important in democracy. Um, so rhetoric isn't just about you know, pushing the audience buttons. It's about how you negotiate the fact that uh, we live in a democracy, um, and yet in the democracy we live in, some people have way more access to political power than other people. How, how do they relate to people who engage with politics uh, as listeners or spectators or audience members. And what I try to say in my book is that one of the things that comes down to it is not the uptake of messages or how successful they are, but how much risk 
the speaker and the audience take on board in the course of trying to do political rhetoric or trying to do persuasion. And I guess what I mean by that is in, in a democracy, we want our political leaders, we want our uh, political orators, the people who speak to the public and communicate with the public on a mass level, to um, really put some skin in the game or put themselves on the line when it comes to messaging. We want them to be able to fail. We want things to be able to go badly for them because only when things go badly for them um, is it really fair to say that I think that they and we, the people who listen in the audience, are engaged in the same kind of activity. Um, that's kind of what brings them down to our level, the possibility that they're putting something on the line every time they try to win us over. Um, and what I see in the, the tradition of thinking about rhetoric that goes way, way back is that that part of building rhetorical relationships is just as important as the question of persuading an audience to believe X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I, I I think that's that's a fascinating point because that would seem to give the advantage to outsider candidates, and and obviously we saw that very much with Trump that like there was an a baked in idea that whether or not you thought he was the worst person on the planet or the best person on the planet, that this was a crazy long shot idea that the man who used to be on television. Uh, uh, telling people they're telling Amarosa she's fired <laughs> is now going to be the president of the United States. And so even just in a, before we get to policy, before we get to what he wants to do, the idea of he's risking humiliation to go for a goal is at least narratively something that everybody can frame. Like that is, that is a, a a very understandable idea, whether or not you are rooting for his humiliation or rooting for his success. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's that's right on in, in a lot of ways. Although I guess I'd, I'd say some things to complicate it, but I guess okay. one thing that I would say is that you're. I, I think in general you're right. Is that I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, as, as probably everyone else in the U.S. did too, um, thinking about. What is it about Trump that connects with people? You know, I started this yeah. book in 2014. Um, I wrote it through most of his uh, first term. It's coming out now that he's been out of office for for a year or so. Um, and, and this was always in the back of my head. Uh, and part of it is it just he absolutely doesn't sound like any other figure in public life. He simply doesn't sound like a regular politician. And I think beyond the other things that that, that are part of his appeal, um, beyond uh, immigration or racial resentment or economics or whatever you attribute it to, um, there, there's the fundamental issue that he doesn't sound like most people in politics do. Uh, and there's some great excerpts of just listening to him speak off the cuff at any kind of rally uh, in which, um, you know, he doesn't sound like uh, like like a, a polished expert has been doing this uh, for years. Um, he sounds like your, your uncle who had a few to me a drink at Thanksgiving and started yelling at the TV. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so I'll say that that's a big part of it. But here comes the button. Here comes the place where I want to complicate it a little bit. Okay, go ahead. I, I think, I think, that very much part of the appeal is built on this idea that he kind of offers this sense of, of the bringing the risk of failure back to rhetoric. But I also think that the kind of risk he offers in, in the way that he speaks is a little bit, it kind of evaporates on a closer look. It's a little bit fake and, you know, like, like it's kind of gold plated in a sense, like a lot of his, his properties are. And here's the reason I say this is that because, you know, despite the recklessness, which, which it looks like he goes through public life, he also, you know, exists in his own kind of bubble in which he, he tweets to people who are primed to agree with him. He invites people to rallies who are primed to agree with him. If you get up and heckle him, you're physically ejected from the rally and you're, you're beat up. Um, you know, beyond that, 
I think you mentioned this idea that that he he looks like someone who is courting humiliation. He just you know story after story um, looks like it's going to end in him um, uh, being shamed in some kind of way, and of course he never is because he's sort of a, a shame free personality, which makes him compelling to people. But I also think that part of the structure that's that's baked into what makes political rhetoric interesting is things have to go badly enough. There has to be a possibility of being shamed or losing face if things go badly. Um, and for most people with kind of the regular human range of emotions, um, if you know, if a tenth of what happened to Trump on just like a regular Tuesday happened to me, I'd never show my face in public again. Yeah, and yet that's not part of his character. So, so I think that you know, again, this is going back to Cicero and the rhetorical tradition. Rhetoric um, is really tied to the notion of, of what kind of character does the speaker have too? And I don't just mean, is this person a, a good person or a bad person? Is it someone we want to be around our family and so on? I think it's more about part of the character that, that, that an orator has to have in order for this to work is partly being susceptible to shame. Shame is part of good rhetoric because it allows bad rhetoric to happen. So, so a shameless person like Trump, and I, again, I'm trying to say that in a, as clinical a sense as possible, someone who sure, seems yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. he can't feel the emotion of shame, uh, in a way it doesn't really offer uh, as much as it seems at first glance, at least that—that's my take on him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that I would say with that core idea of wow, this is a a unexpected thing. Uh, uh, you know, what will he do if he flames out? You know, there was so much of the discourse around the end of the 2016 campaign was like, oh, he's already auditioning people for his Fox News competitor and stuff like that was the inescapability of his campaign. And I think that like between like, I don't know, let me, let me take it out a hundred feet to, to kind of make a larger point. I feel more than ever that there is this idea and this comes to the rhetoric portion that a great leader is somebody who comes up whole cloth with a great message, programs that into the people and then the people follow. And I tend to disagree with that. And uh, I've found more and more as I've I've been out on the road and, and I've been doing this podcast for years now that really the best politicians are people who find the maybe uh, uh, transmitted, sometimes dormant message that is agreed upon in the populace and then just finds the way to tie a, a bow around that. And, and I think that that was something that, for Trump and his messaging, for however crude and weird it was, all he was doing was fishing for those things in a way that nobody in the GOP primary really was because they were being very, very careful. And the Democratic Party has been a very careful uh, uh, organization, at least at the top, rhetorically uh, uh, for, I mean, I would say pretty much since, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe Carter or something like that. <laughs> like, like uh, uh, they, they have been all about not taking risks, not making mistakes. It, it is harm reduction. Uh, uh, so the idea of somebody that is just throwing out one after another. I don't know. Do you want to talk about football? How about <laughs> kneeling? Do you, uh, you guys don't like yeah, kneeling, yeah. right? I right. hate kneeling too. Uh, right. uh, uh, I hate the the the, the border. I hate this. I, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think this person's an idiot. Elizabeth Warren is uh, a fake Native American. Like you know, mm -hmm. all these little things that just 
were murmured in the audience. And you see this when you go, when you cover these rallies, like when he sees a lull in, in, in the energy of the crowd, he will go mm-hmm. back to the hits. He will go to a mm-hmm. thing that he knows he gets a reaction and he'll just be like, Pocahontas. Ah, all of a sudden, everybody cheers. Like it's the first opening mm-hmm. strains of stairway to heaven. Uh, uh, but, but <laughs> right. But, you know, I I think that 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 is that is a fascinating uh, 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 a fascinating thing that some politicians and and you've seen it now more and more I, I guess on on the populist end of of both parties. But do do you think that there is a tie between a certain uh, a certain kind of politician and a certain way that they they look to connect with the audience? Yeah, well, I think I think you hit on it right there. Is that 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 one thing that I, I learned from studying rhetoric and doing it and writing speeches is that I think if you haven't done it, you think that that rhetoric and and political speech is about talking. You think it's about, uh, you have a message, you you get it across, you you have your talking points, you stick to them. And and sure, obviously that's part of it, but it's just as much about listening. It's just as much about understanding uh, where the audience is, what the audience believes, how you connect what you're trying to say with what they already believe. And that rhetoric starts from where your audience is. That's what makes it different from other kinds of communication. That's what makes political rhetoric uh, special uh, and challenging uh, and interesting. So I think one way of studying rhetoric is not just thinking about kind of what techniques do politicians use in their speeches and what kind of messages do they put across and so on, but it's thinking about the different ways in which they try to know the audience because you, you can't succeed as a political orator, as a, as a political candidate without knowing something about who you're addressing. So what I talk about in this book um, are the different ways of political knowing, the different ways that audiences you know, become understandable, legible, readable to the people who are trying to speak to them. Um, and my general critique of what a lot of the ways in which um, this process of knowing the audience happens is that a lot of the techniques uh, of you know, modern political knowing, knowledge generation, uh, enable you to find out things about the audience without putting yourself on the line. Um, and this is, you know, from the basic level of, of polling and focus grouping to the even you know, more advanced uh, political analytics. I, I think about the Cambridge Analytica scandal that happened uh, when mm-hmm. I was writing the book. I think about the ways in which um, uh, presidential candidates apps now allow for uh, geotagging. They, they can physically locate you on the map and locate who you interact with. All sorts of ways of figuring out um, what kind of data you generate as a political citizen and what kind of message you might be amenable to. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to tell politicians not to use these. I also think that they're a little bit more um, uh, – their advertise is more successful than they actually are in practice. But the thing that, that concerns me about all these things is they're all about the aspiration to know something about the audience, to know something about the success of your message before you try it, to know something about mm. the audience from kind of a position of concealment. It's it, Imagine kind of the traditional um, contemporary – political orator is someone kind of crouching behind a wall and putting up a periscope to see what's out there uh, before uh, he or she pops their head up to kind of see what's going on. Um, And I think that the reason it's interesting to study what rhetoric was like before these tools came on the scene is not because I have some kind of notion that, that everything was better back in the golden age, because (laughs) there there are plenty of problems and there, there's plenty of uh, obnoxious, manipulative, pandering, bigoted rhetoric back in the day. But there was also this quality of the only way to know what the audience wants is to try something and see if it works is to risk something of yourself, which could have tremendous rewards uh, or, or tremendous consequences. But, but this, it's a lot more reciprocal in the sense. It's a lot more um, 
you know, it's never going to be a perfectly equal relationship because a few people speak and a lot more people listen. Inequality is baked into rhetoric. But this idea that you have to expose something of yourself in the course of figuring out what the audience wants, that's what brings it down a little, a little bit down to earth. That's what makes it a little bit more of a democratic activity. And, and I wish we had more of that in our politics rather than you know, what looks like the opposite. It looks like moving away of that in kind of the name of risk aversion. So let's go into history a little bit. Is is there a specific politician, either as a theorist and historian or as a speechwriter, that you feel their kind of lessons could be better learned in our modern political meta? Oh, sure. Well, I, I've got quite a few. Uh, you know, one person I talk in the book uh, is Cicero, because you, you certainly can't talk about the, the history of rhetoric without talking about Cicero. Um, and I think the reason that he's really a person who speaks to our times is because his whole political career is lived in this ongoing political crisis. I mean, you know, the stuff that, that happened in January 6th in the U.S. would have been like, like you know, Wednesday for Cicero. Um, <laughs> the idea... The, the idea of political violence, of breakdowns of political norms, of a system of government that's been around for centuries, it seems like it's unraveling. That was his that was his career. Uh, that was his life. And of course, you know, he, he ends up dying a violent death. Uh, he kind of lives through the the assassination of Julius Caesar um, uh, through the civil war that follows. Um, uh, and finally, um, uh, Caesar's buddy, uh, Mark Antony, uh, orders Cicero's assassination. So he lives a violent life and dies a violent death. And for this whole time, he's thinking about the power of words. He's thinking about um, what is rhetoric for when it's surrounded by violence. Um, and it's interesting because it really makes him reevaluate what he is doing um, as a political orator, as someone who wants to use the power of eloquence to uh, win political power and to preserve the Republic, the Roman Republic, if he can. Um, and I think what he comes up with, you know, informs a lot of what I've said about, about uh, risk and putting yourself on the line in rhetoric. It's this idea that the older older notions of rhetoric that you can control the audience if you find the right words, that they're sort of magic words, that those ideas have kind of been in the air uh, for Cicero in his life. And he says, like, in the reality uh, that we are living in, in this time of political crisis and violence, that's just so out of touch with reality. That doesn't exist anymore. All, all that you can do um, is you can cultivate this quality of courage as an orator. You can go into the public sphere and put yourself in front of an unruly public that, that might shout you down, that might throw things at you, that might cause you to lose face, that mm -hmm. might you know physically attack you. Um, and you can take on you know that, that possibility of scorn and, and, and failure and humiliation uh, and do your best with it. The quality of an orator that he's looking for is not someone who has the magic words, but someone who has the courage, or in his word, it was the virtus, it's the, the virtue or even the manliness to confront a difficult audience um, with without tools, you know, with tools that aren't reliable, tools you don't know are going to work, and see what happens. Now, was Cicero like this in real life? And not not as much, not all the time. That was sort of his <laughs> ideal version. He was a politician too. He was, he was risk averse in his own way. But that was his ideal version of what politics ought to be like. And I think it's sort of an enduring ideal for him. Um, and, and that's and that's something where, you know, uh, immediately what pops to mind is in obviously an election that I spent a lot of time on because I did a podcast about it. But uh, uh, in 1960, JFK, who had by and large kind of skirted around the question of the fact that he would be the most or he would be the first Catholic president, at least in any kind of long form oratory sense, decides to make that speech at a Texas ministerial convention, which would be the most hostile thing that a lot of his inner circle didn't want him to do, assumed it might be a big uh, total disaster because there was a mandatory Q&A session and he might get some really ugly questions. 
gives a great speech, is able to edit it down, and it becomes one of his most effective uh, political weapons, uh, not only for people that you know might not want to vote for a Catholic, although I think in general that was a little bit overblown, but also apparently, according to the polls, for uh, um, other minority communities, because his point was, if I were to be denied on the basis of being a Catholic, then who's to say that you won't be denied based on your faith going forward down the road? And that was not only resonant with other uh, uh, religious denominations, but but also uh, minority communities who saw that as as a really resonant message. But I think it makes it makes it all the more palatable or makes all the more exciting when it happens in an environment where it might have gone horrifyingly wrong. Right. And I think I think that that's a great example. That's actually something I hadn't thought about in the book, but I think you're you're uh, right to point that out. Um, you know, the setting is so important for that. Uh, and I, I think, again, you know, since that was so, you know, it was so long ago, um, it sort of it, it sort of registers as a non-event that someone like Joe Biden could be the second Catholic president, could just like name drop uh, St. Augustine uh, and quote <laughs> yeah. some. And quote some Catholicism in his inaugural address, and no one really bats an eyelash because uh, that's just kind of, you know, uh, baseline civic religion stuff now. But you're right that in, in JFK's time, that was enormously uh, risky and controversial. I, th- I think of uh, you know Mitt Romney's uh, 2012 campaign also mm-hmm. kind of treading similar ground uh, w- with the issue of, of his being a member of the LDS Church. So I think that um, that that's you know very much the kind of example um, that. Uh, that you know Cicero might have had in mind uh, when, when he talked about this. So I think that the interesting thing for this is that someone like a Cicero, just someone like a JFK, is very much of the elite. You know, Cicero is um, um, he's of the aristocracy, even though he kind of climbs into it uh, from from the lower rungs of the ladder. He's someone who doesn't have a tremendous appreciation for democracy uh, or what what existed of it in the Roman world or for the public. But he's someone who thinks that that part of being a successful member of the elite is testing yourself against the public. And, you know, again, for JFK, um, from a a very, very patrician background, despite the the handicap of being from minority religion, um, it's this idea that even if you come from a patrician background, even if you come from a background that isn't small, the democratic, there's something that promotes democracy in the idea that you still have to test yourself um, against the mass public. You still have to put yourself in a hostile situations um, and see what's going to happen. And I think this has a democratizing effect, both when it goes well in JFK's case and then when it goes badly. And I think the interesting thing about JFK that you, you pointed out, and I actually haven't uh, read that whole speech, um, although I did, I, I teach a class on rhetoric and someone talked about uh, JFK's um, going to the moon speech. We talked about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I would say this this idea, the, the, the kind of paraphrase you pointed out, this idea that if you deny me on the basis of my religion, you might be denied on the basis of your religion. You know, that in a nutshell is almost how effective political rhetoric invariably works. It's taking something that is of value to the speaker and connecting it to something that is of value to the audience, asking the audience to see how their beliefs and values and interests are implicated in what the speaker is trying to do and saying, well, if you really believe this, if you really believe X, then you ought to believe why they ought to there ought to be a connection that you might not have realized before. But you're really you're leading the audience through that thought process. You're not imposing something on them that was totally alien to them. And I think JFK, in the instance you're talking about, really got it. All right. So Cicero and anybody uh, 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 slightly more modern that we can uh, yeah. that we can draw some how lessons about, from. How about how about the 19th century? Is that uh, is that modern? Let's enough? go. Let's go. Right, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, someone that I really I'm, I'm writing about him in my next book, and I actually I just talked about him a little briefly, I have a paper coming out about him, but someone uh, that, that really 
I thought was fascinating in the history of rhetoric is Frederick Douglass, um, who obviously is, is known as a famously eloquent abolitionist. But but one of the things that I learned um, in studying him um, was the way that he's connected to the, the classical tradition, the way that uh, the, the one book uh, that he has with him, actually the, the one personal possession he has with him when he escapes slavery, um, is a book called The Columbian Orator, which was this book of speaking techniques and, and classical speeches uh, from you know the 18th century and from the ancient world. So it, was, it was his training course in how to be a great orator. And of course, that's how he rose to fame as someone who put those lessons into practice uh, as an abolitionist orator. So the things that really interest me about about Douglas, and this is kind of what, a, what my next book is going to be about a little bit, I hope, is this idea that you know the the, the risks and the putting yourself on the line that, that Cicero talks about, but for him are like a little bit kind of hypothetical or notional, and he's not actually you know risking as much as you think, are for someone like Douglas, who's who's very much a, a literal outsider, who's a literal fugitive from slavery, who literally could be returned to. Um, uh, to slavery at any time if you were captured during one of his public appearances. Um, he's someone for whom these risks are really incredibly real. He's someone that, that sort of takes what is kind of metaphorical in this tradition of, of risk and oratory and makes it literal in a way that I don't think it had been before. I, I think there's a really some remarkable moments when he both talks about, and I think the record's not totally clear on this, but potentially displays uh, the scars on his back that he had gotten um, uh, through whipping uh, when he was enslaved. Um, and it, it's interesting to think about what this means. Um, it, it's literally an act of exposure. It's a literally act of exposing your, your, your body, either metaphorically or literally to the gaze of the audience. And it's showing wounds on your body that, that aren't kind of, you know, honorable wounds. They're not kind of things you get in battle. They're things mm -hmm. that you get, um, on your back. Uh, in a place that is supposed to be humiliating and turning that humiliation into a source of um, rhetorical power and oratorical force um, for the cause of abolitionism um, is, I think, a really kind of it's a remarkable part of his career. And it's an understudy part of his career, because I see in people like Douglas um, and other other um, Black and abolitionist speakers of that period, this idea that, that a lot of stuff in the classical tradition of rhetoric that is sort of um, metaphorical or hypothetical or not totally real becomes way more real for them. They, they live it in a way that even someone like Cicero had not. And I think that really changes the course of American political oratory in a lot of ways in that period right around the Civil War. That, that's sort of what I'm thinking about for my next book. And I think there's, you know, despite the fact that these these figures are, are well known in our history, there's so much more to talk about, about how they fit in to the history of, of, of political rhetoric in our country and how their, their effects are still being felt today. So I do love that the the way the way you just put that that there is a a tremendous worth not only in going into a hostile situation but also that element of of exposure of of making not only well your message via you very real like something that is that is undeniable that is not just eloquence and words uh you are you are impressing and obviously for frederick Douglass, having the scars on his back is something that is kind of a boom see it once undeniable truth now if you have never seen that you can't unsee it uh uh he, the way that he is uh, talking is only going to be aided by the fact that that is now a reality in your world but metaphorically 
if there are elements of your story, you are highlighting them and uh, uh, bringing people into like, oh, okay, well, I am for this larger social safety net because I was a single mother or or because I I have this kind of uh, of lived experience. I'm, I'm for lower taxes because I'm a businessman. This, these mm-hmm. are kind of like cornerstone elements of our modern political theory. Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think that's I think that's right. Is that this connection between who is speaking, who the orator is, um, and what the message is? You know, when I talk to my students about this, I try to say this is one of the main things that makes rhetoric interesting and difficult from other ways of talking. Is it matters who is saying it and how it connects to their presentation and their story? You know, the word for that is is ethos. It's your ethos is the way in which you show what kind of person you are by how you think and argue and and react in public. And there's there's got to be room for this. You know, one time one thing I tell my students is that um, you know something in geometry like like Pythagoras Pythagoras's theorem is true, whether I say it or a math professor says it or Donald Trump says it, it's just, it's just right or wrong. It's true or false. But but nothing yeah. in rhetoric is like that. Everything in rhetoric is relative to the character and the qualities of the person saying it, which which a lot of people have had problems with. You know, Historically, when people have talked about what's wrong with rhetoric as a field, it's people who have a very kind of scientific or scientistic mindset in which they're saying, we, we don't want a way of thinking about politics in which the messenger matters because things are either true or false. Um, but, you yeah. know, people in people who study rhetoric say, no, there's actually a lot of valuable information you get from the way you, the person who's speaking shows his or her character in the course of making that argument. Well, and I think that there's also, uh, you know, to, to offer a more modern critique, there is a major problem of just trying to believe that you can create reality more than your audience believes it exists. Like you can, if, you know, if there's inflation and it costs more to get your groceries, if somebody comes up on your television and says, hey, the economy is doing great, actually. That is something that will be discordant for you because you feel that, oh, it costs more money for me to get out to the grocery store. And then it costs more money than it did two weeks ago to get the 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 food that I would have otherwise. And it's like I I, I very much believe that you just like there. It seems almost endemic in 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 modern politics that it's like, well, just talk through it. Just, just everybody, if everybody says the exact same thing and, and, and maybe we can uh, get the right Sorkonian speech, then everything Mm -hmm. will be Mm -hmm. perfect. Mm -hmm. Message discipline. Right. Let's just like, like figure out those magical talking points, figure out the magical words that are going to press the button. You know, there's this great quote that reminds me of this from, uh, from breaking bad speaking of recent that I I had the book and I cut it, but, but at some point Walter White is, you know, talking about how to win over his wife to this idea that he's a meth dealer, uh, a meth manufacturer. He says like, there's gotta be the right combination of words. There's gotta be the right words in the right sequence uh, that, that could make her do what I want her to do or can make her see it my way. Um, And I think that that's so much, of politics is kind of trapped in that Walter White brain, the idea that it's a search yeah. for the right combination of words that will get what you want, not um, not a two-way street, not not a relationship, not a thing that, that happens in the interaction between the reality that the audience sees uh, and the words that the speaker is trying to project. Because this idea that if I say the right combination of words, it will kind of unlock something in you like, like you're a combination lock. Um, that that's a model of thinking about speech in which I'm the active person, but you're the object in which yeah. you're just something to kind of be manipulated by me. And, and people, 
sense that. People sense that kind of disregard and disrespect. And I think it makes them tune out. I think when you think about a lot of phenomena in politics that I, you, know, you think about the rise of non-traditional parties and politicians, um, you think about you know declining faith in, in, in representative systems, uh, feelings that people aren't represented by political parties, um, you know, de- declining approval of politicians pretty much across the board uh, in most industrialized countries. Um, when you think about phenomena like uh, polarization or hyperpolarization or, or what some people call tribalism, uh, you know, which I put in quotes because I don't think it's a great word for this phenomena. But anyway, you think about all of these, and I think a lot of them, what they have in common are about a public that can sense uh, manipulative rhetoric um, and generally wants to tune out, generally wants to go on strike from listening, which doesn't mean they're not going to participate in politics, doesn't mean they're not going to share things on, on social media that kind of uh, – um, press their buttons or make them angry or outraged or whatever it is. But it does mean they're going to kind of stop listening in the way that you want people in a democracy to stop listening. I think a lot of these things could be understood as people in many ways going on strike from really serious listening of the kind that you have to in a democracy. You know, not because people are dumb or disengaged or don't care, but because people, I think, can tell when they're being disrespected, when they're being yeah. Um, yeah, spoken to as if they're not equals. Yeah, if you're just going to waste my time with this fantasy world that you're creating, then... Cool. Uh, I guess, well, I'll see on election day and I'll pick which one is worse uh, and and not vote for that person as opposed to actually being engaged, which requires a fundamental level of an understanding of what the playing field is. What, who Mm -hmm. am I? Pay attention Mm -hmm. to me. Let me know. uh, Give me a message that I can, that I can uh, resonate with. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been uh, uh, fantastic. Our guest is Rob Goodman. And I would encourage everybody immediately to go buy his book, Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions. Uh, it is available now, so please go do it and and leave nice comments in Amazon. It helps a lot for for any kind of book, but uh, would love it, love it, love it if you guys could uh, support that. If you really enjoyed this kind of conversation, where else are you going to hear about Cicero and Frederick Douglass in a conversation about <laughs> uh, modern political rhetoric? Uh, uh, Rob, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Hey, it's been a pleasure. It's been a really great talk. Thanks for having me on. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This show was edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to thank our guest, Rob Goodman, for coming on the show, you can do so by heading on over to px3guest.com. That is letter P, letter X, number three, guest. If you'd like to email the show, it is very easy. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. You can watch us live on the internet at twitch.tv at px3live.com. promise I will not get banned for saying the word cracker. So let us say the word cracker here. You can share this podcast with your friends and family. px3podcast.com and politicsmerch.com is where you can buy all of your last-minute holiday gifts. If you would like to support us with a one-time Christmas bonus, you can do so. Our PayPal, paypal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo, justin-young-20, got a Christmas bonus from a Joe, 20 bucks. Thanks, man. I always appreciate a little Christmas bonus. Cash app, PX3 Cash, and of course, checks, P.O. Box, 153184, 
Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, the way that you get bonus content is by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And our $10 tier gets you all that and your name read at the end of the podcast in this, the Titanic $10 tier. Idris Arslandi and DJ Katie Mack, Kneemeister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, Dequince, Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, TV Salesman, Spy, D. Really, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dot com Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Double K Ranch, Pop Gold, Ye Old Pinball Shop, John Snuffy's off Route 44, Super Zoomy, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Miranda Janelle, Chief, Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Richard, D Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age Mike, The Gen, Will, J Pink, and Andrew. If you would like to uh, join their ranks, just head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. And that's it. We're done. Uh, we have one episode before Christmas on the free feed. Uh, that will be. With uh, Dave Leventhal, who, by the way, uh, just broke a a major, major, major story for Insider uh, about congressional stock trading. It has gotten attention and traction from Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi. We will get all the details from him next week in our Wednesday episode. And then I believe we are going to do a, a, a year in review recap. And uh, TBD on who the talent's going to be. But I think it's going to be another one of those long-form conversations. Okay, that's it. We're done. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh! Dog and Pony Show Audio.